This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. 2 Kings chapter 22. We'll be reading there, kind of going through it a little bit at a time, so I hope you're ready to follow with me. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab one that's uh, there in the back of a pew or underneath one of the blue chairs. There's some under those. And to find that passage. Last week we read through the whole chapter of, of the pre- preceding chapter, uh, chapter 21. And we saw how the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of God's people, they had been divided after Solomon's rule into two nations, couldn't get along, and uh, had division. And, and uh, now there were two, and both of them, both nations, turned away from God. This story is about the southern nation of Judah, how they had sunk so low, you remember last week, that now they are worshiping pagan gods. Now they uh, have set up the the idols to those gods on altars throughout the land, even in the temple. They're they're even going so far as to do the pagan practice of their their neighbors in that day of, of sacrificing their own children on the altars to these gods in fire. They're consulting um, the stars looking to horoscopes and looking to mediums to help them figure out their day and their future. And all of that is, is an abandonment of God. And that's what the Bible says they did at, toward the end of chapter 21 under King Ammon. His father, uh, Manasseh, had begun that downward slide and made it so steep. And then um, he tried to turn things around, but it didn't work. After he died, his son just took them farther down. And they needed renewal in a bad way. And that's what the series is about. This part of the series is about renewal. Chapter 22, where we're going to start today, introduces a new king who would be the catalyst for that renewal. So today and next Sunday, at least, we'll be looking at the steps that he led them to take that would bring this renewal about. There's a king by the name of Josiah. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 to start us off. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Remember, he became king because we saw last week his father Ammon had been assassinated. And he was a young, fairly young man when he was killed. Well, here's this little eight-year-old boy when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. So until he was 39, and that's when he died. His mother was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah from Bozkath. Don't you love all those names? He did what was pleasing. Listen, here's the big thing about Josiah. He did opposite of his father and his grandfather. He did what was pleasing, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn aside from doing what was right. All right, so we're going to talk about the steps that happened in Judah to lead them to renewal. Here's your first step this morning. Regeneration. Step one, regeneration. Something was different about Josiah than from his dad and his grandfather. They did evil in God's sight. We saw that last week. But here's young Josiah doing something very different. He's chosen to walk a path that was very different for some reason. Why would this young man be so different from dad and grandpa? His grandfather lived most of his life until he was an old man as an unbeliever. His father never believed, and his father led the nation to abandon God altogether. That's not unusual, and we've all seen it, and we know how it works, and we know how it happens. Uh, I guess 
sociology can explain it, maybe psychology can explain it, and, and different sciences have their theories on why it happens, but we all understand the concept of like father, like son, don't we? Remember the, uh, the, the song from the 70s about the cats in the cradle? Remember that song? My boy was just like me, was the lament of that song, of that father who had ignored his family and ignored his son all his life. And, and then when his son grew up and he, his son wanted to have nothing to do with dad, he said he turned out just like me. And that's often the way it happens. Like father, like son happens often generation to generation. It it just kind of is handed down until, like in the case of Josiah and in the case of some of you in this room, someone says, I'm going to break the chain of addiction. I'm going to break the chain of abuse. I'm going to break the chain of, of being a workaholic, whatever it might be. Someone says, I'm going to break this chain, this generational and handed down sinful behavior, I'm going to be the one that says it's not going to go on. The buck stops here, if you will. If your parents' footsteps were going the wrong way, one of the things that I learned that I see from Josiah's life, just from this one little verse in verse 2, one of the things that the Bible tells me, that even if your parents' footsteps are going the wrong way, you don't have to go that way too. You don't have to say, well, you don't understand. You, my parents were. You, you don't have to blame everything on mom and dad. Throw that out the window. That's not necessary. Things can change. Our young people need to be taught that even if their parents and their grandparents disobey God, they can chart a new course in Christ. They can go a different direction. This also means that no one has to throw up their hands and, and say, but I can't help it. It's in my genes. Change your genes, all right? Get a different pair on, whatever you got to do, but it doesn't have to happen. It, It can be changed. The Spirit of God, Christian, who lives inside of you, has the power to overcome past generational habits and to spark a regeneration. Regeneration is what? A new birth. And that's what we see here in the story. I think, I think the, the hope that Josiah's story gives to not only the nation of Judah, but how about the United States of America? I think the, the spark that, that Josiah's story gives not only to his family, but to our families, is that renewal can be triggered by any generation. He was a young guy. It wasn't the old, elderly, seasoned folks that said, we got to turn things around. They were happy with the status quo, and that often happens with us as we get older, by the way. We don't like change. We get into the habits. It's the way we've always done things. And here comes this young buck that says things are going to change, and it starts with me. Regeneration, renewal can be changed, triggered by any generation. Of all the kings of Judah, by the way, all the kings that are listed in First and Second Kings and Chronicles, of all the kings of Judah, only Josiah and Hezekiah, only two kings, were given this highest grade that were given in verse 2. Only these two were compared with David. They were like David. The example, follow the example of his ancestor David. Now, you and I both know, I say both, you and I all know, that David was not perfect. We know that David was flawed. We know that David messed up big time in his life on more than one occasion. He wasn't a perfect man at all. Well, why say he followed the example of his ancestor David? Because the Bible tells us that David was a man, 
He's called a man after God's own heart. The deep driving passion in David's life was to do right and to follow God and to be in the center of God's will, even though he stumbled and even though he fell, even though he made a mess of a lot of things. With his father dying, Josiah, with his father dying when he was only eight years old, somebody must have come along and taught this young boy. Scholars suggest that perhaps it was the prophet Zephaniah wrote one of our books in the Bible. Scholars say it could have been Zephaniah. He was there at that time. Maybe he became this young boy's father figure. Maybe he became this young boy's mentor because as we'll see in these stories of the kings, even though the priests and the Levites and the kings and the people pretty much abandoned God, for the most part, the prophets, the men and women who spoke for God still were true to God. Zephaniah was one of those and he was influential. Perhaps somebody was. In, in Josiah's upbringing, so that he learned to worship God instead of the pagan idols. And he set out to turn things around in Judah. So no doubt someone made a difference in this young man. Someone shared with him the truth about God. Now, if you're a parent, we have a lot of parents, young parents in our church, which is exciting. If some of you are about to become parents, I was just having a conversation with one of our young fathers-to-be for the first time about you're going to get to change diapers. And he was kind of, well, tell me some good news today. All right. Um, If you're a parent, listen to me, that someone who directs your child's heart to God ought to be you. You ought to be the person that does that. I I appreciate, if you were here a couple of weeks ago and we saw a couple of video faith stories, and one of them was uh, Cinnamon's. And I appreciate her faith story that we saw. Uh, she, she told in the, in the video, as she told her story, she didn't grow up in a Christian home. Church wasn't a part of her DNA, her genetic makeup, if you will. But she felt like her kids, two young children, felt like it would be good for them to come to church and to be around Christians. So God led her and her family to, th- this was the first place they came, and she said, and we decided this was it. And they came, and uh, I think 11 years ago, and they've been here ever since. They started coming here. But do you remember what she said? One of the things that she said in that video was this. Then I realized I needed to be the Christian to teach them and not just have the church teach them. Did you hear her say that? What a powerful statement. See, our children's ministries, and some of you have children upstairs in Kidmo and Little K and back in the nursery, and even right now in the toddlers, they're, they're getting a little lesson. You know, I, I don't know what their attention span must be. It must be a really short lesson. But they're getting a lesson to help them learn about God and how God loves them. Our children's ministries, <coughs> excuse me, our children's ministries are there. We have them to assist you as parents in training your children to know and live for Christ. So get this point, parents. Please understand this. The church is here to reinforce what they learn from you at home, not to replace you. We're here to reinforce. That's why we have these children's ministries. To reinforce what they're gaining and gleaning and gathering, learning from you and your words and your example throughout the week, we're here to reinforce that, not to replace you. It's not the church's job to teach your child about God. That belongs to you. And we will never usurp that. We'll never take that away from you. We will never say, let us do that for you. That's not why we're here. We're here to reinforce what you're already doing. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, the last part of the verse says, Fathers, bring them, your children, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. By the way, notice that it doesn't say fathers and mothers. 
It says fathers. And it's using a word there that means dads. Fathers do that. And here's why. Dad, you are, and maybe nobody's ever explained this to you before, but let, let me kind of head you that direction right now. You are, according to the word of God, the spiritual head of your home. And as a spiritual head of your home, the responsibility to train your children up in, in God's ways falls upon your shoulders. Your shoulders first. Does that mean mom doesn't have any part in that? Of course not. She has a great part in it. But, but in, it, it needs to be starting with you. It needs to trickle down, if you will. It needs to be passed on. Mom's a part of it. You guys are a team. Well, what if there's no Christian dad in the home? <clears throat> And that happens quite often. What if there's no Christian dad? Or what if there's no dad? Or what if there's no Christian dad in the home? Well, then, Mom, you're going to get to take this on, and, and, uh, and we will, as a church, do everything we can to help you out with that. Uh, you parents of young children can help your children bring change to their generation. And, and that's my hope, that your kids will impact their generation, their classmates, their schoolmates, their friends, their generation. Because someone said wisely, I don't know who said this, and I don't know where I read it, heard it, but, but it absolutely, and, what a, and it's a, just kind of stuck with me. Someone said, though, the church, us, we are one generation away from extinction. Do you realize that? If we do not pass it down to our children, if we do not let them know about the Lord and, and raise them up to understand him and know him and love him, there will be no church of the living God on this earth in another generation. So it's very important that we do this, that we pass it on, that we train up our children. But listen to an old gray-haired grandfather um, say to you this. uh, If you're going to train your children up to know and love God and teach them what's in the word of God, uh, you're going to have to be countercultural in this day to do that. Because the world's not going to appreciate that. The world's not going to understand that. It will have to be a God thing in your family. Here's something else that I've noticed in my 45 years of being a Christian. I've often seen the youth of the church be the ones who spark renewal among the adults. I've seen that so many times in my lifetime, that it's the youth that catch fire for God, that it's the youth that, that have this renewal and this zeal for the Lord. I've seen youth groups take off and become filled with God's spirit and catch the adults totally by surprise. And the youth are so excited about Jesus and the adults are kind of looking around like, what in the world's going on? They become fanatical about Jesus. They become radical about their faith. I've seen that happen so many times. I think that's because maybe they're they're not old enough to become jaded and to become skeptical and become a little bit hard-hearted. Their hearts are still soft. They haven't lived long enough to get into the habits of doubt and apathy about spiritual things. They're still childlike enough in their faith to accept God at his word. And I've seen renewal and revival break out in churches where that renewal and revival started with teenagers and then spread to the adults. But here, listen to this. I have never seen the opposite. I've never seen it start with the old folks and spread downward. It always seems to start with the young ones and go upward. The last great national revival in this country 
was the Jesus movement of the early 70s, and it caught fire with high school students and college-age kids, and I remember that so well because I lived it. I hope that you'll be praying for our young people. hope you'll be praying for Andy and our youth staff. We uh, Next Sunday evening, we'll dedicate this facility that's upstairs behind us that's been created and built and, and, and planned, especially for their use to reach young people, teenagers, students in this community to discover life in Christ. I hope you'll be praying for Andy and for the team of volunteers that works with him, that work with our kids, that God will ignite a fire for, for him among them, and that not only will it spread throughout our middle and high schools in Dare County, but it will also spread among the rest of us as well. I didn't notice this next part in this chapter the first couple times I read through it. But then one of my commentaries pointed this out, and I don't think we can ignore it. Verse 3, in the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and grandson of Meshulam, the court secretary, to the temple of the Lord. Remember the temple of the Lord we read last week? They had put idols in there. They had desecrated the temple. They had done all kinds of horrible things. And it had fallen into disrepair. The people didn't care too much about the temple anymore before Josiah comes along. He told Shaphan, he said, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him count the money the gatekeepers have collected from the people at the Lord's temple. Entrust this money to the men assigned to supervise the temple's restoration. Then they can use it to pay workers to repair the temple of God. Then they will need to hire carpenters, builders, and masons. Also have them buy the timber and cut the stone needed to repair the temple. Verse 7, but there will be no need for the construction supervisors to keep account of the money they receive, for they are honest people. What an interesting passage in there. And it would be easy to skip over that, but I think there's a deep spiritual truth there. Josiah's young heart being turned toward God. And then you have the idea of these finances, and apparently Josiah had already started, initiated in the kingdom, an offering at the temple. When you come to the temple, we got a special offering plate there, special basket, special wherever they collected money. Put some money in there so we can, when we get enough money, we can repair this building that's fallen into disrepair. We can hire the craftsmen to do the job. But then what's really interesting was that they said, They took the money, Hilkiah the high priest took the money and he gave it to the supervisors of this remodeling project and said, here's the money, go out, hire the contractors, the carpenters, the masons, so forth, those those that we will be building and, and doing the repairing. Buy the material so that they have it there and you don't have to even keep an account of what they're doing. Why? Because they're men of integrity. They're honest men. I think the regeneration has started, the renewal has started, and that is with trust. That's the first step. The second step is the restoration of worship and sacrifice. One sign that renewal was on its way, I think, I think this is an important thing to hear, was that even before the renewal take place, took place, they're beginning to give toward the purpose of restoring the temple. It's amazing how there is a spiritual connection between our finances and our walk with God. And we hear that in the Bible. We see that 
said over and over many, many times in many different scriptures. Jesus said, for example, in Matthew 6, 21, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He said, you'll put your money where your heart is. There is a connection between our spiritual lives and our checkbook. What you and I do with our money is a great indicator of what's going on in our hearts. And that they gave, simply that they gave for this purpose, demonstrated that some people in the land still thought the temple was a special place, still thought it should be cared for. That they gave indicated that there is renewal going on in their hearts, and they gave hoping that the temple would again become what it had been when it was in its time of greatness, a place for worshiping, a place for offering sacrifices. And I think it's really interesting that the money that was given to the contractors who were doing the work was given with no strings attached. You give it to them, you don't even have to hold them accountable. They're honest men. They're men of integrity. Trust them, they'll do the job. They're not going to waste it. They're not going to steal it. There was no accountability required because they were known to be men of integrity. They were given the money and entrusted to use it wisely, and they did the work. I think this is a great testimony for these men. They were paid money to do something, and they did it. And apparently, don't you love it? Maybe you've ever been involved in a construction project, maybe building a house, remodeling, or doing something in your home. Two things that you hope for when you begin. Number one, that the job comes in under budget. Number two, that it's finished on time. And uh, these guys were trusted to do that. Their business was conducted honestly. A sign of renewal. They're, they're businessmen, they're contractors, they're doing with the funds what they've been entrusted to do. So the temple's being repaired. To the Jewish people, by the way, what was the temple? We don't have a temple like they have today. That's, in Christianity, there is no such thing as a building that houses God. But to the Jewish people, it was much more than a building. The Old Testament place was the place where God dwelt. As Christians, we know that the building where we gather to worship this place or any other building that's open, for example, on Sundays and people are coming in to worship God, we know the building is not the sanctuary of God. That's why you'll never hear those of us who are in the know call this room a sanctuary. You know, our our architect, when he drew this up, and it's there in the words, right in the middle of the room, sanctuary. Well, we told him, "Eh, really, we understand what you're trying to say, but it's not a sanctuary. This building's not a sanctuary, even though it has stained glass. Um, doesn't make it a, a sanctuary. Well, well, then, do we have a sanctuary? And the answer is, yeah. God's sanctuary is now within each of us. Where's God's sanctuary? It's within you. You are his sanctuary. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, explaining to them, for example, he said in 1 Corinthians 6, the context was talking about sexual sin. That was rampant in, in the city of Corinth. Everybody's kind of doing what they want to do, sleep with who you want to sleep with. He said, listen, sexual sin, whether it's premarital or extramarital, is wrong because he said your body houses the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Read that with me. Let's read it together. Do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who's in you? Where does the Holy Spirit live? Not in a building. He lives inside of you and me who know Jesus Christ. So when a Christian, you use that context in 1 Corinthians 6, 
When a Christian engages in sexual activity outside of marriage, he or she is literally desecrating the temple of God. Now, that's a very countercultural statement as well, isn't it, in these times? But it's the truth. The Jewish temple, this great building, and, and now today there's only one wall of it left. And you know, you see pictures of Jerusalem, the Wailing Wall, where, where the, the Jews will go, the very devout Jews go, and they pray, and they stuff, they write prayers on notes, and they stuff the notes in the cracks in the mortar between the stones. That's the only thing that's left of that temple. The Jewish temple, as had been before it, before they built the building, they worshipped at the tabernacle, a tent. It was a holy place. What does holy mean, by the way? Holy means set apart, has a, has a special purpose, and it's only used for that one purpose. That's what holy means, set apart for one purpose. And that purpose was to be a place of worship and sacrifice to God. Within the temple was a small room. You go inside the temple, and in the back was this small room called the holiest place, or the holy of holies. It was so holy that during the exodus from Egypt, God, as they traveled and they had this tent, the tabernacle that they set up, they knew where God was when they set up the tent because in the daytime there was a, there was a pillar of cloud that hovered over the Holy of Holies, and at nighttime there was a pillar of fire that lit up the entire camp. And it hovered over this Holy of Holies because inside this room was the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant were Aaron's rod that budded, a pot of manna, and the Ten Ten Commandments, the tablets that God gave to Moses. It was a holy place. So holy that that this room could only be entered one time a year and only by one person, and that was the high priest. And he could only enter if he had already confessed his sins And he was ready and he was dressed appropriately in the right clothing, the right priestly garb. He could only enter if he had obeyed a number of very strict regulations about the sacrifice, the blood that he brought, and what he wore in his own personal relationship with God. It was so strict that if he dared ignore the rules, that if he entered that room, he would die. God would kill him. Without the temple... The worship of God and their sacrifices for their sins as a nation was halted. The temple had been desecrated, other idols put in there. And God had said, you'll have no other gods before me. God says, I don't share my glory with anyone. And they had allowed that to happen. Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, and his father, Ammon, had erected false idols to other gods in this building. And the building itself had been apparently neglected by the Levites, maybe because the people stopped giving so they could take care of it. I don't know, but it had been neglected. Their job was to maintain it. So Josiah instructed the, the high priest, Hilkiah, to oversee the repairing of the temple so that worship and sacrifice could be restored in such a way that God would once again be honored in this place. For the Jew, the temple affirmed that God was with them. As long as they saw outside the temple, there was an altar there where they would sacrifice animals and burn their flesh on these altars and which would create a cloud of smoke. And as long, and it was, I mean, every day people are bringing sacrifices. As long as they saw the smoke arising from the the altars of the burnt sacrifices, so long as they were able to go to the temple courtyard to pray, as long as the day of atonement, that one day a year, when the high priest confessed their sins as a nation and went into the holiest places, as long as those things were happening, they knew God was accepting their worship. 
When did all that change? When did that stop? It stopped when Jesus died on the cross. Because he was the ultimate sacrifice for sin. He was the once for all sacrifice. He was the end all of sacrifices, if you will. Hebrews 10, verse 10 says, For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. So there was no need anymore for any further sacrificing of animals. Jesus died on the cross as our sacrifice. And as he died, the Bible tells us, the New Testament tells us, that that great curtain that separated the holy place from the rest of the inside of the temple, it was inches thick, this curtain. It was impossible for humans to tear it. But the Bible says that as Jesus died on the cross, when that happened, that that, that curtain was torn from the top, and it was, it was massively tall, from the top to the bottom, separating, opening up the holy place Symbolically saying now everybody who comes through Jesus Christ can approach God very boldly and simply because now you're priests. Now you are priests before God. Interesting. Anybody can come into God's presence through Christ. Instead of a rule book of regulations that they had, Christ's death opened up the age of grace for us. So now, because we have grace, because now we can come boldly before the throne of God, now worship is a choice for us, not a legal requirement. It's a choice. I hope you're here because you want to be. That's what that means. I hope you're not here because somebody dragged you, somebody made you. You know, I hope you're not here to please the person sitting beside you. I hope you're here to please God. That's what grace is about. It's a choice. Now we worship because of his great love and mercy towards us. Now, not only worship, but sacrificial giving, which is what they did at the temple, is an act of worship and grace for us. No priest is going to stop you at the door and see what offering you bring to God today. Let's, let, let me, let's look and see how much is on that envelope, how much is in that check, how much cash. Are you, nobody's going to stop and do that because it's between you and God. But here's the deal with that. That's where we can struggle. Worship and sacrifice are between me and God alone because of grace. So if there's no one to check it off on my list but God, and I know this to be true and so do you, I'll bet. If there's no one to check it off my list but God, the temptation is to make worship and sacrifice optional. To make it an option. On my part, we don't have to look God in the eyes every day. We don't have to stand before a physical person because he's not there. He, we can't see him, so we can avoid him and we can think, hey, you know, nobody knows. And, and by the way, di- didn't Jesus say, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing? Right? But hear me, church, when worship and sacrifice become optional, when a Christian can stop gathering with other believers for worship, when a Christian can stop giving to God and serving his family, his church family, and he uses grace as the excuse, that person misses totally the point of grace. Because grace is not about the letter of the law. Grace is about the Spirit. If I've come to the place where I, as a believer, don't want to worship, if I've come to the place where I, as a believer, don't want to bring my best 
to God for his kingdom, that tells me something's missing here. Something's lacking in my spirit. And I need renewal. I need to find what's broken and repair it. The next point that I gather from this story is this, that grace empowers me to do more than I could under the law, not less. Grace empowers me to do more than the law required, not less. Where do I start to begin this restoration in my life, this renewal? Let me start anew. Where do I begin with this worship and sacrifice? Well, first, I don't need to look any farther than the mirror. If you want to look somewhere, don't look at the people in your household. Don't look at your spouse. Don't look at your kids. Don't look at your boss. Don't look at your situation. Go take a look in the mirror because that's where I need to begin. Worship begins with my personal relationship with the Lord. I can't say, yeah, but it's my family. If you only knew my family situation, it's my boss. My boss makes it just so every day I go to work, I just do nothing but get mad. I begin to stew and I lose my salvation. You know, I lose my sanctity. I lose my thought. Jesus is the last person I think of when I'm at work. I can't say it's my boss. I can't say it's my church. Yeah, but God, you know those people at my church? They are so hard to get along with. I don't understand. can't blame it on my church. We can't say it's any of those things that comes between God and me. No one else can keep you or me from worshiping. Did you hear that? No one else can keep you from worshiping. Secondly, first I start with my own personal relationship. And then I need to identify the factors that have cooled my relationship with God and correct them. Identify what they are and then correct them. And that means with getting myself back into communication with the Lord through his word. And that's exactly what happened. Look with me at verse eight. Chapter 22, verse eight. Remember Hilkiah? Tell the men, take this money and restore the temple. So they began refurbishing the temple. And then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. And then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan returned to the king and reported, your officials have given the money collected at the temple of the Lord to the workers and supervisors of the temple. Shaphan also said to the king, one more thing, one more bit of news. Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a scroll. And so Shaphan read it to the king. Step number three is revelation. Rediscovering the word of God. This scroll, this book of the law, was a copy of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch was the first five books of the Old Testament that had been written by Moses. Genesis through Deuteronomy. We call it the Pentateuch, meaning the five. It was placed beside the Ark of the Covenant. The scroll was in the holy place. There was the Ark of the Covenant sitting there. Beside the Ark was the scroll, the Pentateuch, the law of God in the holiest place. Deuteronomy 31, 26. God said, take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God so that it may remain there as a witness against you. Interesting wording there. That's why it's there, to be a witness 
The law was the basis of their beliefs and their civil government. It contained all the requirements God gave to Moses for the Jewish people to make them holy and set set them apart from all the other nations. But sometime earlier in their history, maybe dad's generation, granddad's generation, maybe way before that, Maybe it was during the time of a king named Ahaz who desecrated the temple. We don't know, but the copy, this copy of the book of the law, this scroll was lost. It was misplaced. Nobody knew where it was. And it wasn't like you and I today. We have multiple copies of the word of God. We've got a hundred or so of them in this room right now, just in the chairs. I own a bunch of copies of the Bible. It wasn't like that when we had printing presses and could do that. And everybody can have multiple copies of the Bible. Whatever copies they had have been handwritten meticulously by priests, by scribes, I mean. They were very rare. To have a copy of the Word of God, of the law, was a very rare thing. Well, today we have the complete Word of God. What is the Word of God? Very simply, it's His written revelation to us. It's more than a book. Its purpose is to be the guide for our lives as believers, to be our guide for our life together as a church. And though it is ancient, though it's thousands of years old, it is at the same time relevant to everything that happens in our lives. Paul wrote these words to his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. He said, all scripture is inspired by God. It means it's God-breathed. That's what that word inspired means. Inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what's right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And when we read the word of God, when we study the word of God and we believe the word of God and put it into practice in our lives, the scripture says it begins to work changes in us and renew us. It exposes our weaknesses and flaws and sins so that we can confess those things to the Lord, so that we can be renewed day by day. It can do, this Bible, this word of God, can do what no surgeon's scalpel is able to do. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It gets down in your life and my life down into the nitty-gritty. It cuts deep where we need to be cut. So what needs to be removed can be removed in our lives. I had a question from someone the other day. This this past week. About an interpersonal relationship issue, and the question was, well, Rick, what should I do? And my answer was, what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, I think, my answer was, well, here's what Jesus said to do in that situation. What do I do? Well, here's what Jesus said. And guess what? What Jesus said, do you think that what Jesus said was the easy way to handle it? No way. Because the easy way would be just to avoid it. The easy way would be to run the other way. The easy way would just to do nothing. Now, Jesus said, no, you've got to go and you've got to speak to that person. You've got to confront that person and you've got to confess to that person. They've got to confess to you. Jesus said, it's not going to be easy, but it's God's way. And because it's God's way, it's the best way. That's why here at Nags Head Church, our first question about anything is, okay, well, what does the Bible say? 
about any situation, about any doctrine, about anything that comes up. What does the Bible say? Why do we say that first? We say that first very simply because the Bible is God's word. The Bible is our foundation. That doesn't always sit well with people when we say, well, here's what Jesus said. Here's what the Bible says. And people today in this culture and this time don't necessarily want to hear that because God doesn't care about political correctness. God doesn't care about compromise. God doesn't even care, frankly, about your or my comfort. He's not about doing what makes us comfortable. He's doing, he says, I want you to do what's right and what builds character. And because of that stance that we have here in this church, we have people who get upset about what we teach here and how we practice what's taught and that we're willing to put the word into practice as a church. But this church, I've been here 21 years, and I know the history of the church before that. This church has always taken the position that hey, we're going to stand on the word of God. We've got to die somewhere. We're going to die on that hill on the word of God. Next week, we'll see Josiah's reaction to hearing the Bible read to him. For the very first time in his life, he's hearing the word of God read from the scroll that's been gone for years. First time, can you imagine? As an adult, first time he's hearing it, how did he react to it, and what did it lead him to do? Bow with me in prayer, will you? Lord, I don't need to look anywhere else but to you. And to look at myself, to see the needs in my heart. I need to look into this mirror of the word of God, as James called it. And let the word of God expose what's lacking in my life so that I can be renewed. Thank you, Father, that the part of this renewal was giving of the funds to restore and that they restored and they, ret- they trusted the ones who did the restoration. Part of this renewal was in, in taking care of what was broken down in the temple. Lord, and each one of us who know Jesus, we all possess you, Holy Spirit, in our bodies, this temple, and we need it to be repaired fairly regularly. Thank you, Father, for the revelation that was discovered for the scroll that had long been, had disappeared. And they opened up a closet one day or they removed the pile of boxes and there it was. And it sparked something incredible and it sparked something, God, that only you could do. So thank you that we can turn to your word and trust what you've had to say above all else. In Jesus' name I pray. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.